Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 28 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. P-Supers, thanks for tuning in. This week we have the first of a two-parter with Dr. Shane McLaughlin. One of the things that I found doing my PhD, um, it was from a relational frame theory point of view, but it required me to read up on intelligence and individual differences, which is in some ways completely in opposition to traditional behavior analysis. And you try to appreciate both sides and you say, well, look, maybe these kinds of measures, they're not really good for behavior change, but maybe it would allow us to identify how we can help people better with our behavior change techniques. And and that's basically where I'm at right now, trying to figure out how can we use what we know from other aspects of psychology that are pretty solid, well replicated and so on. So I think bringing the two together could be positive. That's just a tiny taste of what we talked about. Shane really set me thinking about a whole host of organisational issues and my stance in the workplace. Other topics include Shane's experience of imposter syndrome, his preparedness to be wrong, spoiler alert, Shane says he's been wrong about things many times. We also talk about Shane's willingness to share ideas with psychological communities outside of his own immediate discipline and his view of the primary function of a good scientist. Hear Shane talk a little about his research on the impact of smart training on children, which we'll delve into in far more detail in part two. We finish with a tale of his sporting prowess, which may or may not give us clues as to his stance as a researcher. This conversation was such a pleasure. Shane is open, honest, thought-provoking and humble, as well as being great fun. People Soup is a community of people who are interested in behavioural science at work and how we can make it accessible, fun and useful for ourselves and each other. At work, behavioural science has the capacity to enhance our well-being, help us be the person we want to be more often and provide us with perspectives to enable cooperation, collaboration and innovation. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, A first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. And that was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. So welcome to People Soup, where we aim to nourish the mind and flourish at work. Reviews are in for our last episode, Mr Ben, Lou and Ross too. Tom Zimbardo on Twitter said... In this episode of People Soup, Ross and Louise deconstruct the 1970s story of Mr. Ben, a bowler hat-wearing adventurer in the outer realms of consciousness, and relate his experience to acceptance and commitment therapy. Do you know what, Tom? I couldn't have put it better myself. And if that doesn't persuade you to listen to that episode, then hear how Tom finishes his review. The moral of the story is that it doesn't matter if your thoughts are true or not, or even representing an underlying reality so long as they are workable. If your values involve fancy dress and setting fire to things, so be it. Always move towards your values. Thanks, Tom. Really appreciate the listen and the review. Another review on my website at rossmackintosh.co.uk, which was anonymous. I listened to your podcast with Louise yesterday, and it was great. Both of you have such a natural, soft, reassuring style. I appreciated the Mrs. Slocum compilation, even if my wife told me I was being puerile. Ha <laughs> ha! Who can beat Mrs. Slocum? And yes, of course it's puerile. 
If you do enjoy the podcast, I'd love it if you would subscribe, rate and review it. Whatever platform you're on, it helps us amplify our voice and reach more people with stuff that could be useful. For now, get a brew on and have a listen to part one of my conversation with Dr. Shane McLaughlin. Dr. Shane McLaughlin, welcome to People Soup. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to having a chat. It's great to be speaking with you and I suppose indirectly the, the pea supers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So how are you doing? How's lockdown going for you? My research department, as you know, are forensic in their analysis and they noticed you'd achieved a milestone of lockdown. You'd baked a loaf of bread. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, of course. It's one of those things that when you're working all day at your kitchen table or your makeshift office that I, I guess sometimes you need just 20 minutes, 30 minutes to occupy yourself and, um, you know, just for a little break, um, mm. for the physical break, of, of, instead of sitting hunched over all of the time and, yeah, making bread sounds great. Um, it, carbs are where it's at. Yeah, I'd like <laughs> to commend you on the texture of that bread as well. It looked amazing. Yeah, it was a little bit gummy, though, I have to say. Um, so uh, I think next time, I think I'm going to make some more this weekend. And uh, next time, I'll uh, I'll tweet that out, too, and, and people can rate my bread. I'm sure that can become a thing. <laughs> oh, God, ratemybread.com. That's definitely a thing, I'm sure, already. I'm sure, yeah. And and you've been marking, I hear, this week. How's that going? Yeah, uh, that's that's most of what I've been doing in, in lockdown. It's just that time of year, so... You know, geez, I'm, I'm working at LGMU at the moment, and there are several hundred students, which means that there's a lot of marking to do. But that's that's normal at any big university, and it's just you get these sorts of crunch periods where you have to dig in and do as much as you can, as quick as you can, as well as you can. So mm. it's been a few weeks like that, and then I guess when these few weeks are done, we'll be able to go back to research and all of those other bits and pieces that we that we like to do and planning for next year and that kind of thing. But yeah, marking's intense, but that's that's uh, what you sign up for, which is just all right. Yeah, and you said LJMU, which is Liverpool John Moores University, I believe. Yes, yes, that's that's where I'm working at the moment. Um, it's a good place to work. There's some really great people there. Every Everybody that that I go past in the hall, or, or at least I, I did, they're tremendously... Uh, competent people they're all really well accomplished and of course i end up with this imposter syndrome as a relative noob um wow really yeah i mean there, like there are people there who you know they're, they're pumping out all kinds of important papers and they're really good at what they do you know they're, they're people that you want to learn from and that's uh but you also don't want to take up too much of their time because if they're really busy and important that I, I guess this is something that maybe the, the P supers might be able to identify with if they're in a business or wherever they may work that you want to learn from from people who are tremendously competent, but also you know they're really busy. And it's the same with with, with my colleagues that that I work on papers with. They're they're as busy as as I feel that that I am um, with things like marking. And you know you know that for for those guys it's going to be possibly even more intense so you don't want to i don't know you don't want to encroach but also i guess the the, the reason that this is quite salient now is the fact that some people um when they're working at home uh they like to not do too much um when possible that's that's a, a 
they don't put demands on themselves and and that's one really good way of coping for me it's the opposite it's it's to just get lost in work and mm. um i think people are really different that way and you don't want to kind of put your way of of dealing with things onto other people too when your way of dealing with things is more work i guess mm. it feels quite normalizing to hear you talk about imposter syndrome and and mm. how you don't like to disturb other people because i think part of my function dr shane mclaughlin is to hold a mirror up to you and say hey look at your achievements mate you are not without uh, competence, a research base, and and skills. Sure. I, I mean, I, there are some things that I can do, um, some things that I can do better than some other people, and way more things that, that I'm not so good at. So um, I, I think you kind of just, you know, I guess you kind of got to compare yourself to who you were yesterday and not who someone else is today. And Although you also have to compare yourself to other people because otherwise you'll fall too far behind, I guess. But, um, you know, you kind of I, I'm a little bit wary about this sort of approach of of saying, oh, we have the answers. I think working, mm. you know, I, I've been a member of ACBS now, the, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science for eight years. And the amount of times I've changed my mind and been wrong about things is just staggering. So. I'm always a little bit wary about about resting on my laurels and thinking that mm. I know things. Um, and also uh, wary when other people seem to think that they know things too, which is, you know, and some people do. But yeah, I, I guess that there's part of me that always says, well, what can we do better? Because that, that's what mm. we're here for, really. And I love, I love the way you articulate this. And I think it shines through from your website as well, actually. My research department had a scooch at your website Oh, God. And I, I do love a fellow human with a strap line and a kind of mission statement. I think it really helps us with clarity and it really helps you share your message really effectively and maybe capture people's interest. So what I would call your strap line says evidence-based interventions to help you become your best self. Yeah. I love it. It's clear. And then it goes on to say, I am passionate about helping people who have biologically rooted psychological differences mm. to communicate and cooperate with one another and thrive across a range of settings. Yeah. I believe that merging the fields of differential psychology and behavioral psychology to be a promising approach to a large-scale behavioral change. Sure. It's a bit of a mouthful, I'm afraid. Sorry about that. No, no, I like it. I think it I think for me it brings clarity and it has it has impact. I mean, I I'd hope so. I mean, if you're working in in org psych, for example, I think obviously you're interested in behavior change because you want to improve things for people in as much as possible. But at the same time, the the best predictors of things like workplace performance, or at least the best single predictors, are things like individual differences. I mean, there's a an old meta analysis. It's old now um, by I think Rian Earls, nineteen ninety two or ninety one thereabouts, and it, it was saying that, well, things like cognitive ability are the best predictor of workplace performance. And this is before all of our jobs were, were kind of heavily cognitively reliant. Some of them were more manual labor jobs at the time. And I think that's important to know and to reconcile that with being able to change things and improve things for people. So you want to be able to predict things with individual differences that are perhaps a little bit difficult to change i mean we have got real temperamental differences and we're, we're we're literally physically different from one another but at the same time 
just because you want to improve things for people doesn't mean that you can't recognize that and vice versa. Um, mm. So if, if there is a way of reconciling those, then I think that would be a really great way of merging the fields of, I guess, behavior modification, behavior analysis, I guess, and the fields that I guess have had the mainstream success in, in psychology, uh, differential psychology, um, those kinds of fields, because, you know, I've tried my best to present my, my work on smart, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. I've tried to present that work to people like, for example, the, the hardcore intelligence researchers I presented at their conference, and they're surprisingly more warm to it than a lot of people from the behavioral science side of things that, that I come from would have expected. And I think that there's, I think that dialogue and, and, and being open and speaking as much as we can is the best way forward. And so far it's, um, I don't know, it's something that I want to stick with. I, I, I'm not a big believer in sort of staying within your little community because then you can kind of create an echo chamber and miss out on opportunities from people who are different from you, basically. Mm. I am nodding with vigor. Yeah, absolutely. I love it that you're you're reaching out across boundaries there. I, I couldn't forget this time. I was at the um, International Society for Intelligence Research conference in 2018, and I happened across this guy that I'd only ever, um, I guess, read his papers and, you know, really admired, really well accomplished. And um, in this case, it was Richard Heyer. I'm not sure if it's Heyer or Heyer, but H-A-I-E-R. And he's the editor-in-chief at Intelligence, which is kind of a big journal and um you know he's a neuroscientist and you know you can see him doing podcasts with all these famous uh people all over the world that are you know that that are not within touch and distance of, of you know someone like me who at the time was still a phd student and he asked what i did and i said well i come from a behavior analytic background and he said oh well you know skinner believed that this was a black box and um you know that essentially that he didn't factor in, we'll say, um, neuroscience, more or less. And then I said, well, technically, that's not true. I'll send you a video on that where he says the exact opposite, that actually he does. It's more that, that he has concerns over measurement issues rather than he wants to completely disregard neuroscience and so on, cognitive mechanisms and, and that kind of thing. And he was really warm to it and he changed his mind and that's that's what you want as, as a scientist, someone who changes their mind based on new evidence. And I'm sure it, it extends to people generally, you know, mm. if, if they're if somebody's at work and you know, whether it's a relationship, anything, if somebody's uh, wrong about something, then ideally they want to know so they can be as wrong for as as little time as possible. And, you know, God knows I've been wrong about enough things myself. I mean, I don't I don't mean to highlight that time that somebody else was drowning and I was right it's not mm. like that but it, it's more just you know I, I think there's a lot more collaboration than to, to be had there that than perhaps we've appreciated in the past mm. and and we are big fans of your website actually because you actually articulate this I think you say um things that you love are diversity of ideas and you say if everyone agrees all the time we stop improving yeah things other things you love classical liberalism do whatever you want, but your right to swing your arm ends at my nose. Yes, absolutely. And data 
It's how good scientists make informed decisions that will help more people. Absolutely. I really love the way you bring those to life as well and and what you're saying. Oh, they're probably stolen. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I I think that's that's it. I mean, I don't think that people are all that different in terms of, we'll say, what they value. And maybe we kind of emphasize them a lot. I mean... I remember the first time that I met you was at the ACBS conference in in Dublin. And uh, one of the things that I noticed with conferences like that is that there's this tremendous emphasis on, I guess, things like group identity, right? Where we're pushing for better conditions for this group or this. And of course, you can see where that's coming from a good place. But at the same time, we may not need to brush up against each other so much. Maybe cooperation is is probably a better way of going about things because I guess when you factor in things like group membership, tribe membership, I suppose, in evolutionary psychology terms, what you get is when you have enough intersections of different tribes, you've got the individual, right? Um, Mm. So I'm not sure that this sort of uh, group level analysis is the right level of analysis because within groups there are all kinds of differences between people that i think need to be appreciated basically i wouldn't like to categorize somebody as thinking something or believing something or being able to do something based on on what group they're in i know a lot of people will disagree with that but but it strikes me as something that warrants exploration or consideration at least yeah i think it speaks in the workplace i think that speaks to um diversity and inclusion yeah, exactly. You want diversity of opinions because you never know just because you've got a bunch of people with pitchforks behind you and torches agreeing with you doesn't necessarily mean that you're right. <laughs> so you you kind of want to be open to being wrong. Now, I guess the flip side of that is that you can be completely indecisive and, you know, maybe sometimes the, the group level of analysis is the right level. I don't know, but sometimes I I feel like we we take it for granted um, that way. I I guess that's why I've been looking at things like individual differences in behavior modification. Um, So we're looking at, um, for example, I'm I'm working with the guys in Chester, the Contextual Behavioral Science Center. And we know that there are certain parts of the, the population who score on average differently in terms of certain traits. And I guess by traits, we mean patterns of behavior that aren't necessarily completely socially conditioned, maybe in part, but but not completely. And usually that means that it takes relatively long-term therapy to change. Now, long-term could be a couple of weeks uh, or months. Um, There's data on that. But I, I guess the whole point is that by manipulating social contingencies, this sort of nurture effect approach, it's not going to equalize completely everything there. There will be differences between people that in some sense need to be celebrated. But in some cases, you get people who, let's say they're really high in negative effect. They, they feel really bad when something, mm-hmm. when something goes wrong, more so than other people, all other things being equal. And we, we think that that might be really important for things like um, suicidality. And so what we would like to do is try to make therapy more accessible for them. If if you think about ACT therapy, for example, it's all about sort of moving towards what you value, what's important, 
which of course is important. But I mean, if you're down in down in hell and somebody says, well, try to think of the most important thing to you, they'll tell you to golf, you know, <laughs> and it, it might make therapy inaccessible. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you just need to let those people have what is effectively a rant and say, well, what do you hate the most? <laughs> and And so we've tried to develop a values clarification exercise that starts from what would you least like to be most of all and use that as a starting point for just getting out of the fire so to speak um, and move, gradually moving towards what's important because you know I, I guess I've always felt that things like act there they rely on really higher order ideas like what you value and, and most people don't quite know and it's really hard to articulate and so maybe figuring out what it is that you don't want to be and what you hate might be really helpful for a contingent of the population that we know are on average at least not not everybody but on average which is a, an important difference they're going to be coming from a, a very different place one of the things that i found doing my phd um it was from a relational frame theory point of view but it required me to read up on intelligence and individual differences which is in some ways completely in opposition to traditional behavior analysis and you try to appreciate both sides and you say, well, look, maybe these kinds of measures, they're not really good for behavior change, but maybe it would allow us to identify how we can help people better with our behavior change techniques. And and that's basically where I'm at right now, trying to Mm -hmm. figure out how can we use what we know from other aspects of psychology that are pretty solid, well replicated and so on. So I, I think bringing the two together could be positive. What's really set my mind racing and what you said is, is this idea that values, accessing values and values exploration and clarification mm. can be quite a challenging thing. And we're thinking about that, or I'm particularly thinking about that in our Act in the Workplace protocol, because we're thinking we're, we're giving a little definition of what a value is, then we're encouraging people to do a card sort. Yeah. What if someone's thinking, sitting there thinking, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> and... Like you described, they're, they're in a really shitty place because values clarification, is, is that's just can sound intimidating. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. It can be a little bit intimidating to compare yourself to your ideal self and to then try to work towards that because maybe the gap's too big to bridge and maybe it's worthwhile. And this is why I have a lot of, you know, I come from a quite a, a working class background and what a lot of people there obviously work in things like manual labor jobs and i think there's something to be said for you know a competent plumber or a competent bricklayer you know somebody who is good at what they do and they contribute something that is really worthwhile and that that is needed if you can't be your ideal self well at least you can pick this up and put it over there and it was useful and that's something Hmm. You're giving me goosebumps there because I think from my experience in the workplace, so many dis- people describe themselves as I'm just, and then insert grade or position there. Yeah. And yeah. it's it's quite dispiriting that people think of themselves in terms of those labels like uh, a grade like B7 or E4 or whatever the yeah. nomenclature might be. Well, well, that's an example of the dark side of defining your identity by your group membership. You know, I am this grade, I am this job, 
I'm I'm this gender, I'm this, I'm from this country, whatever it might be. And in some ways, you're sort of, you're lumping yourself in with whatever stereotypical expectation there might be. But instead, what you can say is, well, look, what can I do? What, what behavior can I focus on? What can I do to make the things around me just marginally better? If you can make it a little bit better, then maybe you can go a little bit more. And that, that's what behavior therapists do, by the way. They say, well, look, let's take a, a tiny step and see if that was okay. And it might be anxiety provoking and all the rest of it. But okay, well, that wasn't so bad. And let's take a little step further. And you try to shape these behaviors up bit by bit. And sometimes the, the mean of different groups, even though most groups, whether you're talking about pay grades or whatever else, the distribution around that mean might substantively overlap. You know, the means could be really close together, but the distributions might substantively overlap. But it seems like a huge jump. But maybe you look closer to home and you, you look for something really small that you could make better. And, you know, maybe that sets off a chain reaction in, in, in terms of you being the person you could be. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's just trying to think about the right level of analysis, you know, for different kinds of problems. I, I guess I worry a little bit when I see a huge emphasis on trying to move an entire group at once when people within a group are tremendously different and have different needs and different circumstances. And I, I guess the whole point of diversity and inclusion, whether it's in the workplace, is to appreciate differences. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't help people to become their best selves. Mm. What I would like, and maybe this is more achievable, is that people can see there's reasonable room for some disagreement uh, where people with differing opinions uh, are coming from uh, a place of, of good. Mm, I'm really getting that sense of you being the the person who puts their head above a parapet, whatever parapet you may be within, <laughs> and, and reaching out to to other disciplines or areas which are maybe traditionally within their own, I don't know where I'm going with this metaphor, but within their own little tower, and you mm. having the the courage and the curiosity to to reach out and and explore in a way that yeah, you can come from different positions, but are you? Is what you are proposing or exploring? Is there an underlying goodness under it? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be a little foolhardy because if you're a, a good scientist, your job effectively is to look at your heroes and, and and then try to find things that they've done wrong and point it out as publicly as possible. <laughs> because. <laughs> <laughs> and and you don't do that unless you respect somebody because you say, well, this is a good idea and I want to help improve it. And putting your head above the parapet is to say, well, maybe your entire tribe is wrong about something, which is not, it's, it's not something you necessarily do to win a popularity contest, but it's something that you do in the interest of helping more people, I guess. Um mm. Uh, so there is a, a risk with, with putting your head above the parapet, I guess. You know, I, I don't consider myself to be a tremendously important voice. I've, I've really only just finished my PhD. But, you know, I, I think ideally people get, let's say, permanent jobs in, in, in academia, for example, and they can become tremendously well protected. And there's a temptation there to fight your tribe's corner 
to the point where actually the purpose of having that protection is to have the safety to question things, to question really fundamental things maybe, and to move things forward. And there's a, a temptation there to promote the idea that you were right all along and sell books and workshops and become popular among your tribe. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that on its own, but I guess the flip side is, I guess the point in, in having that sort of safety and recognition is that you get to push the boundaries a little bit and make things better for everybody. Um, and sometimes you'll be wrong and sometimes you look like an idiot, which I'm sure I've done. Absolutely. But it'd be great to see people who are, let's say, high up in particular, I don't know, research areas. Maybe maybe the same applies to things like managers. I'm not sure. But people who are in a comfortable position, making sure not to take certain things for granted. And I think there are some really good people um, who are trying to do that. And then there are some really good people who aren't trying to do that. They're still really good, you know? And, and so I, I'd like to see the sort of the nod and agreement kind of thing to, I don't know, be, be slightly more tempered, I guess. Um, mm. but that's just me. But I like, I like what you're saying because there is this, in organizations, in academia, there's a kind of structure that elevates a person to kind of a deity level. Oh, yeah. People then have more reluctance to question them or disagree mm-hmm. and then the danger is that the person on the elevated pedestal starts to believe their own hype and develop a level of hubris that isn't functional so we've got to be careful about this in in everywhere really absolutely that that's also true you know i, I don't know how many people have that sort of hubris i i can't speak to what's in their minds or hearts but at the same time, it certainly happens some places. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people got there out of humility. I don't know how many people got there by other means. So I, I genuinely agnostically don't know. But I, I think they'll recognize that anything good that they've done has come probably out of questioning things that were perhaps well established. I don't know. And they've not necessarily debunked it, but hopefully made it better that's for me that's what it means to be useful to yourself and others which is i think is a good thing to aspire to i'm just going to take us back to my research department's notes because they'll get upset if i don't reveal them all mentioned your phd you did it in psychology and education at the university of chichester where you were also a member of the Functional Behavioral Science Laboratory, or as I like to call it, the House of Tyndall. Yes. (laughs) Indeed. You are a fellow of the Higher Education Academy. Yeah. And you are what I would call a prolific researcher. I've seen your your CV on your website, and there's lots on it, man. And I'm going to read one. So it's McLaughlin, Tyndall, and Pereira. This one is in press, I think. Relational operant skills training increases standardized matrices scores in adolescence, a stratified active controls trial, and that's in the Journal of Behavioral Education. I'm not going to read all the others, but anything anything to say on that one? Well, that's one of the ones that came from my PhD project, where we're using smart training. So that's 
the the training developed by Brian Roach and Sarah Cassidy, who are you know tremendously passionate about it, and but they're also graceful. They were willing to say, "Here, use smart training uh, at no cost and test it out." We believe in it that much that we're going to uh, let you independently test this because we believe that our findings will replicate even though you don't have a financial interest. And I think that's a really important thing to be able to do. And I really, really respect them both for that. That's that's the first thing that I'd um, mm. have to say about it. So we did, I think, replicate the, the findings that, that they originally found, which was that by doing this smart training, that you seem to be able to raise what I think is general cognitive ability. So obviously you can raise IQ test performance or you can raise general cognitive ability and they're slightly different things. And I guess the difference is that you can train somebody to be better at a test, but you can't train somebody to be better at a test in such a way that it also helps them be better at other things that the test predicts that are completely unrelated. As I mentioned earlier, you know, IQ tests are, a lot of people argue the, the best predictor of things like uh, workplace performance. Um, they're quite clearly by far the best predictor of academic attainment. Now, I guess the whole point of RFT and SMART is to say, well, look, are IQ tests in some ways proxy tests of relational skills? And so if we can train these relational skills, then maybe we can improve performance on IQ tests and the things that they predict. And so we gave this relational skills training to some children in some schools in Ireland of different age groups. We have a few different papers on the way, hopefully, um, and that was one of them. And what we wanted to do was include larger samples so that we'd have more power, more generalizability, because I guess RFT studies, that's the one thing that is broadly lacking. You're trying to derive general principles from experiments that are with a small number of people. And well, what we found was that there were some rises in the smart training conditions. There were not uh, rises in IQ. I'm going to say IQ for short, but really it was nonverbal IQ measured with a matrices test. And the control condition for that study was that was scratch computer coding, which is something that does engage you cognitively, but we wouldn't necessarily expect it to raise cognitive ability. So it's not just engagement, it's something about the the skills that are being trained up. Yeah, and that study we found, I think, uh, just short of a six-point rise in nonverbal IQ. And that was, let me think, that was with 15 stages completed. Now, the other smart stages had much bigger rises, but they completed, you know, roughly 55 stages. So mm. there's a lot of potential with this, I think. But what we found, I guess, was that it's really hard to get kids to do this challenging training, which I guess is no surprise, but I think the payoff could be a lot. Uh, we've recently had another similar paper with younger children. We've had a decision on that. Um, they've given us some revisions to do, but we think that that's going to be perhaps more important, where we found that after training, the children's cognitive ability predicted their summer exam performance one month later uh, over and above their their time one cognitive ability so essentially that that difference that that variance that was 
different from time one to time two, which is effectively the IQ gain experience mm. variance in exam outcomes. So especially reading comprehension. And that was that's something that we're really excited about and we're going to follow up. We've a few different projects in mind and uh Now then, P Supers, your ears are not deceiving you. I faded that out. Talk about a cliffhanger, but that's all you're getting on smart training in this episode. Tune in next time to hear more about it. Now let's go back to the chat where I've just asked Chain to share some pivotal moments in his career. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ones, there are a few that spring to mind, I guess. When I finished my degree, I was a bit of a gadfly during my degree too, you know, where a theory is presented and you're like, that's wrong. But I also didn't know how to articulate that well at the time. And so for this reason, I wanted to study critical thinking and to a lesser extent, intelligence at the time, but critical thinking more so. And um, they were offering these master scholarships at, at the, the place where I did my first degree. And it was for a master's by research and it was to cover the fees, which for me was really important because, you know, when, when I was at university, there were five of us in a house and we used to chip in two euros per week. And this would get us our basics like bread and beans and noodles and what whatnot. And literally lived on two euros a week um, because we were able to get cheap things um, at the local supermarket. So the whole idea of paying for a master's degree, which I don't know if you do anymore, but you certainly did have to at the time in Ireland. You know, I couldn't do one. There was no hope. But these scholarships did provide some hope. And I had a good relationship with my undergrad dissertation supervisor. And I wanted to study. I wanted to do some research, wanted to understand a bit more, I guess. And I guess, long story short, I didn't get it. I was sure I was going to get it. I had my plans uh, for this master's. And, you know, it required, I think, a 2-2 degree. I got a 2-1 degree, but I was probably lucky to get it because I wasn't a tremendously good student. And, yeah, so I didn't get accepted, which was completely, that, that turned my world upside down somewhat. And I was left sort of, I guess, I found myself unemployed. And... So I knew I wanted to do some research. So I looked around and a few hard months there where you don't know where you're going. You don't have a, a direction, I guess. Um, but you know you want to find some area of psychology that makes sense to you. And I stumbled across RFT. And I sent an email to this guy called Dr. Ian Stewart at NUI Galway, who was into RFT, which made sense to me intuitively at the time, and philosophy of science, which I'm, I think or at least I was big into, I, I am to some degree, I think. And yeah, the pivotal moment for me was, you know, I came from a, a university that wasn't tremendously um, well ranked. Not that we have rankings per se, but it wasn't one of the bigger universities in the country. I had a 2-1 degree, which was sort of the minimum if you wanted to do a PhD. Of course, you can you can do a PhD if you get a master's degree, having gotten you know, lower than two one, but I wanted to do research. I couldn't really do a, a taught master's for financial reasons. And um, yeah, Ian took a punt on me. I went over there every week for the rest of that year after I finished my degree. I went there every week to attend his lectures. Mm. Um, he sort of gave me a shot when I had no right to have one. So anything that's ever happened to me that's been good career-wise is 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 very much down to him at the start, I think. So I, I think it's probably lucky that he believed in smart training. Uh, so that was the one thing that sort of 
you know, things like that. It's like, well, maybe this guy could be up to scratch with the right uh, support. Mm. Um, so I ended up taking a an ABA job working in applied behavior analysis in a school for kids with autism. And I stayed there for two years while doing a, a PhD part time with Ian. Now, after that two years, I, I, I changed to um, go to the University of Chichester uh, to do a PhD because, you know, the, the, the PhD with Ian learned so much and he pushed me so much and it was really hard. But during that two years when I was part time with, with Ian Stewart, I was working full time in Dublin, which is the other side of the country. So you're kind of isolated there. And at the same time, you know, my dad was very ill. He was diagnosed with cancer at the start of that that two years and he died at the end of it. So I think it was sort of a good change, but 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 um we ended up publishing the work that, that I did with Ian Stewart. That was my first ever paper. It's been cited a few times too, which is nice. And I, I haven't worked with, with Ian Stewart since, but we're planning a, a a pretty nice project that I can't quite talk about yet, but it's it's smart related and I'm quite excited to to work with Ian again, uh, because I've just so much respect for him and he gave me a shot. And also um, Ian Tyndall too. He he also gave me a, a shot to do a PhD and to pursue my ideas and to think aloud, I guess. And not very many PhD supervisors will sort of let you run with it and will be as encouraging as Ian Tyndall. And, you know, I'll always be tremendously grateful to both of those guys. Now, there are lots of other people along the way uh, that I'm leaving out, but but they're pivotal moments career-wise. And um, I've been really, really lucky to be honest. Um, and sometimes you need a little bit of luck. Mm-hmm. So there's something about the name Ian for you. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of Ians uh, that, I, <laughs> that I know and have known. It seems to be a, a trend. I have to go find somebody called Ian <laughs> to, to make progress. The research department um, in trawling the news archives globally they found a report of a sporting incident, uh, a fracas, if you will, involving one Shane McLaughlin. And I'm not sure if this is you, me, or somebody else. But let me let me run it past you. I should say there is like a, I think a League One football player with my name who's obviously much better. <laughs> so, ah, well, it could it, it could well be him. What this article said is um, this person, play, this Shane, played for Kells in an away game against Trim and got a sneaky equaliser in the away game. And what happened next was brought to life by an eyewitness who said they kicked the living daylights out of Shane because he'd skinned one of their fullbacks with a step over. Yeah, Quite a yeah. gripping story, this. And um, then later, the Kells team boss was egged as they were leaving. That's right, yeah. No, that, that that's all true. Um, this is playing under-16s. It was my, my one year playing football for a, a, you know, a proper team. Well, proper team. No, I'm going to say we were a proper team. And um, yeah, we were playing against Trim, who are the town nearby. And I should probably admit this now. I, I think that the goalkeeper had the ball in his hands, but I don't think he quite had it in his hands. And I kicked it and it went in. It wasn't pretty, uh, but it counted. <laughs> and so this this annoyed a lot of people. And I think I was playing what right wing that day or something, which is, I think, quite funny because I'm not particularly fast. And then they they had their 16-year-old fans in, I would say, the stands, but I'm pretty sure it was just a few benches. 
and they're shouting abuse. And I was as infuriating playing football as I probably am now as a researcher in terms of being a little bit, I don't know, we don't do that chain, I suppose, is probably the best way of putting it. And so, yeah, I, I had a tendency to run with the ball, skin the fun, full back. And <laughs> so it just sort of, you know, put in harder tackles, so to speak. And that was, that was how the game was played, I suppose. And then I, I almost respected them for egging the bus as, as, as we left, because, you know, if you're going to have a crosstown rival, then what else are you going to do? Mm. <laughs> And I think that we, we did chat about this on Twitter at one point. And I think the reason it came up was because we have a P-Super listenership in Trim. Oh, Jesus. Okay, right. <laughs> sorry, Trim. Uh, you have a great Aldi. I'm, I'm sorry. That's that um, situation all resolved now then. Well, hopefully. I mean, my, maybe they can, in return, they can claim to have ended my career or something because I didn't play the year after. So. Ah. <laughs> Gosh, what what have we uncovered? I'm sure I would have been big. Yes. <laughs> and and continuing that sporting theme, um, sure. you ran your own martial arts club when at school. And I'm intrigued, when you were doing your PhD, thinking on the sporting theme, did you develop a capacity to walk as fast as Dr. Ian Tyndall? Nobody can walk as fast as, as Dr. Ian Tyndall. I, I don't know how he quite does it. He, he He walks as fast as he thinks, I'll put it that way. As for the... The martial arts thing, yeah, that was something that I did probably more than I studied, which is, you know, maybe I should have studied harder in retrospect, just just so you know, kids. <laughs> but yeah, that, that seems like such a long time ago now. The only exercise now I get is stretching the truth and jumping to conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. And they had one more very tenuous bit of research. And they said you were in secret talks to play William Wallace in a remake of Braveheart. <laughs> Where did that come from? Can't imagine. I can't imagine. Oh, but um... okay. I don't know if I'd get away with that, mostly because I'm not Scottish and I, I couldn't do a very good Scottish accent. Yeah, no, that was one of my favourite movies growing up. Tremendously violent, worth a look. Um, doesn't mean I endorse Mel Gibson's views on anything. But yeah, that was actually partially recorded at Trim Castle, by the way. Um, I think the the scene at the end i don't know if not if many people know that or care but there we go there's a top piece of trivia for pay supers that the trivia <laughs> Ooh, you're on fire man well yeah hopefully hopefully i'll burst into flames after comments like that it's just oh God. <laughs> okay pay supers that's it in the bag I'd like to thank Shane for joining me. What a splendid chap. Next week, we'll delve more into his research. If you like this episode of the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and the skills with more people. Of course, a subscription, rating or review are also very much appreciated. The show notes for this episode are at rossmackintosh.co.uk and this includes links to a few different platforms. I love to hear from you, and you can get in touch via the following miraculous means. On email, we are at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we are at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, people.soup. And on the old Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic, and to you for listening. Look after yourselves, peace soupers, and bye for now. We have a peace super listenership in trim. Oh, Jesus. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> sorry, Trim. Uh, you've a great Aldi. I'm, I'm sorry. That's that um, situation all resolved now. Then. <laughs>